Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. By his own admission, Duncan Forsyth spent a lot of his 20s travelling, skiing and partying. Chance attendance at a wine tasting back in Queenstown inspired him to get a job at Child Farm. It was the start of a career that seen him become one of the key figures in New Zealand's central Otago region, especially since he and a partner bought Mount Edward in 2004. He's an opinionated, funny and unconventional interviewee. Hello, Duncan. How are you? Oh, Tim, great to hear from you. Been, been way too long, my friend. Where are you? You're in, you're de- you're, you're in Kiwiland, aren't you? We are. We are. We are. Well, my wife, my wife and I, we, we're in Bannockburn, central Otago, uh, way down south on the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. And you're going into winter, aren't you? I mean, it can be pretty bleak down there in winter, can't it? Oh, look, all the, the last of the, the golden autumn has finished. The, the yellow and gold leaves have all fallen off and it's, and it's looking dark and cold and, and skiing's not too far away, but there's, it's, it's, it's pretty bleak. Well, we're hoping we can bring a bit, of, a bit of northern sunshine into your life today while we're having a chat. Oh, please do. <laughs> Listen, lots of stuff I want to talk to you about. I mean, very interesting. I think your journey into wine was, shall we say, circuitous, really? I mean, it took you a while to get there. I just wonder, was wine part of your life when you were growing up? Did folks drink it? Oh, no, look, not at all. I think the closest we would have got to wine was probably a, a, a box of um, Libra milk or, or, or Blue Nun. It was it was definitely not part of um, – it wasn't part of New Zealand. You You – it wasn't legal to drink wine in New Zealand until 1969 in restaurants. And wow. so my parents were the first generation to even drink any wine. And, and it was all the sort of imported rubbish, um, bag and box, um, just just horrid, sweet, sickly things. No one really drank it. It was all beer and whiskey back then. And, and your mum was German uh, and, and dad Scottish, right? Yeah, my mum was German. She was a, and she was um, on the first boatload of immigrants after the war in uh, in the early fifties um, from Germany, and she came with her mum and her sisters and brothers. I think every single uh, male member of her family had got killed in the war, and they uh, they fled through, well, got to got to Australia via an old pen pal of my grandmother's. Um, and then she met my father, uh, who was a, a shipping executive. He's Scottish. Um, he was on secondment to Sydney, and they met, and 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 the rest is sort of history. I, we we came to New Zealand when I was about four, yeah. um, so I'm an immigrant too. And and are, are are they still with us, your parents? Um, my dad isn't. My mum is. Um, although, although you could argue not um, how she used to be. She's getting pretty old now, so she's sort of in her late eighties. But she she's yeah. still got a smile on her face, and uh, and uh, still calls me Dumkoft. And, uh, <laughs> and she's seen your success, right? Which is great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look! I think um, I think parents always view their children's success differently. I, she doesn't even drink wine. Um, so the the irony is that um, she doesn't really taste the success, but she sees it. That's good. I mean, you originally studied law, I believe, and I can't really imagine you as a lawyer. I thought, yeah, I'm sure you'd have been a good one, actually. I mean, what were you thinking? And then you did linguistics, marketing. That sounds a bit more useful. You were kind of 
Still no wine at that point, though, was there? Oh, no. Look, I think university back then in New Zealand, it was just a pathway to um, your formative years. What you studied was somewhat irrelevant, and and I had no idea. Really, I had no idea until sort of mid to late 20s of mm. what any sort of career might hold or certainly my productive life. Mm. I mean, because you went to the States then, didn't you, for four years to ski? Were you teaching skiing? Were you just being a ski bum? I was just having fun, I'd have to say. I, I left university and and my path at that point was all about just enjoying. It was all care, no responsibility. And, and those sort of years, I think, in your early 20s, often the best best years of your life in, in, in some respects. Hmm. And so, no, I've, I skied. I, I, that's, a, that's a passion. I spent um, way too many um, days and nights and weeks in places like New Orleans, and New York, and and really just having fun, and and, and formative years, uh, certainly not productive. Well, was it an important time in your life? Do you think? Oh, I think it is. I think you find yourself in those sort of situations. And I spent four or five years away, and and you know got up to all sorts of mischief, but also put myself in situations where I had to find out a little bit about myself. You know, when you've only got you know a dollar in your pocket, and you're in a strange place, and and you've got you've got to you've got to survive, or you you're in situations that you've never been in. You know, experiences help form you, and and certainly those years, I think, I sort of learned a lot about myself, and 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 they formed a lot of what what drives me today. I think. What sort of things? I think probably uh, the ability to be yourself. A lot of my friends um, aren't from. Uh, university backgrounds they aren't from um what what you would call sort of regular careers and i i met a lot of those people who gave me encouragement to do whatever i wanted to do as opposed to you know what you grew up with your expectations yeah. be it parents or societal or that sort of thing so i met a lot of people who just formed their own path mm-hmm. um and and that gave me encouragement to do that you know for myself i think I mean, you then went back to New Zealand, you're in Queenstown, and you went to a wine tasting. And Where was it, and was that your kind of eureka moment? Oh, I was actually trying to go out with somebody, and, um, and, and I thought, what could, what could go wrong, women and wine? Um, it, it turns out quite a lot, but um, I, I, it was run by a now friend of mine, and I think he was the only person in town at that stage who knew anything about wine. And I think largely it was an excuse for him to get a whole lot of money from his willing participants and buy and buy some good wines. And I suppose it was a bit of a eureka moment um, because I suddenly discovered it was a bit more than just about um, having a box of wine and, and getting absolutely shit-faced. And it actually had something behind it. And uh, I finished the course and the, the relationship ended horribly. But literally the next day I, I went out to um, a local vineyard and at that stage in central Otago there were only three vineyards. There was some um, Ripon, a place called Gibson Valley and, and where I went, Chard Farm. And I rocked up there and, and asked for a job, literally like two days later. And um, which which of the Hayes did you meet? The, both of them, the two brothers? <laughs> yeah, the, both of the brothers were there and they took one look at me and I had quite long hair in those days and they said, no, you can, you know, on, on your bike, you, you bloody hippie, and um, sent me packing. And so I, 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 I thought, well, what do I do now? 
And they used to have this scheme in New Zealand for the long-term unemployed. And you'd have to realise that I went to university and went straight away overseas. So according to the tax department, I'd actually never worked. And so I qualified for the scheme. And as part of that, they paid for you to work somewhere in order to learn a skill and for the employers to take a chance. And so two days later, I rocked back up and, and I said, look, I'm your free labour for the next four weeks. And amazingly, they turned around and said, okay, you'll do. And um, about two weeks later, offered me a full-time job and, and, and the rest is history. I mean, it's in a spectacular place, isn't it, with that amazing bungee jump? I mean, knowing you, I'm sure you've done a bungee jump. Was that part of the job description? Oh, look, it was. It was the early days. It was back when if you jumped for nude, you'd get a free jump. And, and it, was, it was very, it was, it was fun. You know, all of the people were of a similar age, sort of mid to late 20s, and it was a time when the town was just starting to explode. So we had a, we had a great time. It was, there was skiing, there was parties, there was and, – and I and I'd started something new. I was in a winery and, and didn't know anything about it and, and didn't really know what was good wine, what was bad or nothing. And so the whole thing was a bit of an adventure at that stage. I mean, what was the centre of Targo wine industry like then? You said there were just three wineries, and there wasn't really an industry, was there? No, there wasn't really. And and you'd have to think that probably only 10 years prior, Marlborough had just started, and so that's at the top of the South Island, and we're at the very bottom. And 10 years before that, all the wine had been made in Hawke's Bay or in the Auckland region. And so the concept of making wine away from a really hot place like Hawke's Bay or in Auckland, down in central Otago where there's snowy mountains, was completely foreign to people. Mm. No one in the wine industry then thought we had any chance. And we were we were sort of patted on the head politely, but but really given no chance. And so you had a little group of people who started to do what they were were going to do and, and were soon joined by the likes of Rudy Bauer from Quartz Reef and Matt Dicey at Mount Difficulty and, and Blair at Felton Road. And and no one really, you know, gave us much chance, Dean. And so so it was a really sort of tight band of people who just went, look, bugger it, we're we're gonna make this happen. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 we stuck together and it formed the basis of why Central Otago was such an inclusive community and mm. an inclusive yeah, place to be, really. T- tell us a bit more about it, because you're in the middle of the South Island, really, aren't you? Or sort of middle south, yeah? To how marginal is it as a place to grow grapes? And, you know, what are the other influences on the terroir and the climate generally? Well, it's first of all, it's the only place. So you're in the middle of Southern Alps. I, I'm, if I look outside my window and it's light, you see the Southern Alps running there. So big mountains, you've got big rivers, and, and you've got glaciers at the head of these rivers. Mm. And it's the only area that is inland in New Zealand. So all other wine regions have the sea as their influence. They're all maritime-based. Mm. So it's the only region that's inland, which means that the temperature range from night to day during the growing season, so during spring, summer, and autumn, mm. is so much bigger than most other places. Mm. And just like any fruit, be it cherries or apricots, grapes, they t- they get their aromas and, and, and a lot of their flavours by that diurnal shift, so the shift between night and day. And the bigger the shift, the more vibrancy the fruit, mm. the more vitality they have. It's, it's seasonal, so we have 
four summers. I mean, four seasons, sorry. Um, and it's very distinct. You know, the summer goes January, February, a little bit of December, but by the first week of March, every year it's done. Mm. And it suddenly goes cold. And then you know you've got two or three months before winter hits like it just has now. Yeah. So the seasons don't extend. So the wines, even though they're really bright and they've got fruit from from the, the sunshine that's here, it's, it's really dry and hot, and, and the huge shifts in temperature, they're never really, really big and ripe and luscious, even though they've got real fruit intensity. And what about the soils? Well, the soils are all all glacial derived, so here it's schist, and that's a, that's a metamorphic rock. So it's all it's all compressed. So I guess you have soils like that, and somewhere like sort of the Douro or the Faults, mm. they have they have similar um, styles of soil, mm. and so it's all glacial derived. Um, when it's ground up, it's called loess, and what it tends to give you generally are wines that are very lineal. So they, they finish to a point. They have a very defined palate from start to finish. They're not generally broad or soft. They're, they're, they're very, uh, they have vitality and freshness, but they, they're very sort of pointed wines. And there are two quite distinct subregions, aren't there? Or more than that, but I mean, there are two halves to it, really. Yeah, there are. They're, they're, so, so it's basically a system of valleys, and the valleys are quite small, so you generally can see the start and finish of each valley, mm-hmm. and, and from side to side there might only be sort of uh, a kilometre at most. Mm-hmm. And so you drive through these valleys, and, and there's Gibston, which is sort of nearest to Queenstown, which is quite cold, where the, where the winery is based. Mm-hmm. Um, you, have, you have Wanaka, uh, where Ripon and Maud are based, um, Cromwell Basin is sort of the, the mainstay of all of all the um, grape growing in central Otago, and that's the largest valley. And in that, you have Bendigo, Bannockburn, and Pisa. And then further inland, which is basically the driest part of the South Island, is a, is a region called Alexandra, where we are, Gibston, nearest Queenstown, and, but all our grapes are grown in Cromwell and mainly in the Bannockburn area. So that, that's where I live. That's where I'm right now. So, so Bannockburn is – you find us, Mount Edward, but you yeah. find Felton Road, you found Mount Difficulty, a couple of others. And that's probably the warmest of all the sub-regions. You know, as you said, you got this job at Child Farm. You did so well that you got a job, a full-time job, yeah? You were there for eight years, and now the two at Peregrine. And then this chance came up, didn't it, to buy Mount Edward in 2004, and you bought it with a business partner, John Buchanan. And the previous owner, um, wonderful man, ex-journalist Alan Brady, um, how did he end up in Central? Because he was from Ireland, wasn't he? Yeah, look, I think he he was quite typical of... Most of the early people, none of the early people had any real wine background. Mm. And and he simply saw a similarity with places that he recognised from overseas. And it was Germany, it was the slopes, it was the the, the inclines next to rivers and the mountains. And he, and he recognised that from his travels. So too did the folk at, at Ripon. Mm. And, and, he, and he basically gave it a throw of the dice. And 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 lucky for him, you know, it worked out. But it was a real throw of the dice. There was no great. It was an educated throw, but there was no great knowledge behind <laughs> any of the early pioneers. I mean, I, I'm yeah. sure they wouldn't mind me saying that. And how did you know he wanted to sell? Did he approach you, or was it just general knowledge? Oh, look, everybody knew everybody at that stage, and and there were only at that stage there were only 
12 wineries or 14 wineries and we were looking for something and I probably, I, I seem to remember just talking to him about various places to, to have a vineyard and saying that I wanted to start my own brand and he just simply just sort of said, look, I've, I've sort of, I've, I've got to where I've got with Mount Edward, you know, how about, how about this? Mm. And I, and I think probably when you're starting out, starting your own brand is quite a daunting prospect. And so buying buying someone else's is actually an easier route sometimes. You buy a, a business that is, is a going concern. You've, you know, you've hopefully got a bit of cash flow, which in the wine business, I mean, you know, never – um, you've got a bit of image, and it's, and it, and but what you buy is somebody else's image of success, and you don't really realise that I think until you you have a bit of maturity on board or you get a bit older. And so while it's a great thing to buy, and and I don't regret it, no regrets in life. Mm. We're buying somebody else's image of of what they wanted to do in the in the wine business and that has its that has its ups and downs um, along alongside it what was he known? he was known for pinot was he already by then pinot noir that yeah, is look, obviously the central you know, everyone is known for pinot hmm. that was the first grape planted and i think 85% of the region is planted in pinot noir hmm. so he he certainly was he was he sold his wine almost exclusively in the uk um, i remember telling my friends None of them whom are real winos, but 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 they have a degree of knowledge around what's going on, and I remember sort of telling them proudly, "Oh, we bought this mount, this winery called Mount Edward," and and every single one of them was just like, "Who? Never heard of it?" <laughs> and I was like, oh, "Bloody hell! <laughs> what a bad decision!" <laughs> you know, it's like couldn't believe it. <laughs> and did you set out to change the styles from the start? Oh look, no, I no, 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 I didn't. I, look, I just wanted some. You know, you're so so nervous when you start, and you you just you just want people to like your your wine and and, and to buy it. I mean, it, you know, honestly, we we were just you know you'd crap yourself silly every time you made a wine. So we we bought it and 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 we we're selling it to the same people. Well, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty rough, smooth, in, in some respects, I guess. Um, I, I, I can, I can talk wine with the best of them, but my natural home is is far more blue collar than middle, the middle class that I, that I occupied, and um, and so I found that I was talking to people and and having to put on a wine personality and. Uh, rather than my personality, and 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 it sort of never fitted. To be mm. honest, mm. I I could it was white white tablecloth and swirling swirling the wines and 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 looking at cherries and plums and 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 waxing lyrical. I always found a little bit of a false narrative to me. Not what we were trying to do, yeah. which is which is to make wine that you know ultimately wine is is so cool. It, because you can make a wine, and as you know, you can. You, it's one of the few things in the world. You know, tea might be an exception, and maybe chocolate, where you can say, "I know where this came from, and who made it, and when it was made, and 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 it's the phenolic markers that tell you." And it's and that is that's what's cool about it. You're making something. You've got a product, but 
I, I couldn't do that around a white tablecloth and, 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 and with people who I honestly just didn't resonate that well with. So I found there was a disconnect mm. of what we had bought and what we were but and what we were trying to do and who we were trying to mm. do it with. Mm. And, and that led to a few changes. Well, particularly in the vineyards, I think, because, I mean, the way you farm is very important to you. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we, we, um, we I think, probably along in the early 90s, um, uh, early 2000s, sorry, um, we decided to switch over to organics. So we became certified in 2006, and I think um, – and that was along with um, Ripon and, 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 and Blair at Felton. And there were only 14 wineries, and the three of us decided to change at that point, and I think really soon after. So it was, it, was, it was completely going against the grain, but we were starting to talk about where wine came from and then it came from the vineyard, and we were honestly seeing markers that we could resonate that story with, but at the same time we were farming our vineyards like you know chemical Ali in Iraq. You know it was it was crazy. We were spraying all all this Roundup, and and you you were you were taking care of your own vegetables at home better than you were the mm-hmm. vineyard that you that you were placing your reputation and your and your and your stake of what you wanted to do in life on so the whole thing was incongruous mm. and um and so we changed really early on um, um to, to organics and we've been certified since you know 2007 and along with that we changed our practices in the winery to to be a much more of not natural wine producers that's a that's a, a term that's both misunderstood but also it's not who we represent, but certainly we we try to do it in an organic and a very traditional way in terms of making the wine as well as growing it. I mean, you're also quite outspoken about wineries that you think don't care sufficiently about the environment. You know, you're saying that the almost critics should say, be a bit more outspoken themselves and say, well, these people don't farm well. Yeah, I do. I, do. I mean, I'm, my my wife says I'm really obtuse and, and and quite annoying. So, and I'm sure my friends think the same. <laughs> but I, I think there's a disconnect between we talk, as winemakers and as wine critics and everybody in the industry. We talk about wine having a sense of place, yet when we look at the wines, we only often they're only judged by how people taste them. Mm. And I think the disconnect now is that we we understand what the impact of how we live in our farming. We unless you're blind and you've been living in a hole, we know that we have all this negative impact in terms of our environment and our and our soils and our health and all of that sort of thing. And so I find it impossible to disconnect this talk about where a wine comes from, if you're not actually having that same amount of um, dedication to actually treating that place the same way you, with the same sort of reflection that you're talking about your wine. Mm. So when you know, in New Zealand is, is you know it's a small place, so I'll I'll talk in a circuitous way, but people have their winery favourites, and they say these are the top wineries in New Zealand and, and, and the people are lovely and all that sort of thing. But some of them do not treat their vineyards very well mm. and they don't treat, their, treat the environment that they grow their grapes in very well, 
yet they talk about a sense of place. And, and I find that um, I, I, I can't marry those two. There's that disconnect that you talk about, yeah. Yeah, I have to really look at what they what they do as well as what they say, and and it's not an absolute. You know, we're not a poster poster child, and um, there, there are much better examples. But it's all about the intent. Mm, I think that's true. I mean, you, you've also made the range a lot more diverse. You know, from when Alan was there, but obviously, but that's a long time ago, two thousand and four. The list is pretty diverse now, isn't it? I mean, how many wines do you make? Depends on the vintage. Oh look, it's 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 too big. You know, it's it, we we came back into you know we're about to we're in a recession now I suppose and and we will be for a little while and the last one was in two thousand and ten and before two thousand and ten we basically just made Pinot and Riesling mm. and then we had this recession and as a winery we were struggling at the same time uh, my wife um, uh, who's also a winemaker uh, worked in the Macon for. Um, for Lafon, actually, mm-hmm. and and um, and I went over to visit her, and and I thought we would be drinking all these sort of fine burgundies, and you you romanticise when you're a winemaker, especially if you're a winemaker who makes Pinot and Riesling ab- about this place, about Burgundy. You know, why wouldn't you? And um, we I went over there to visit her, and I had this vision of drinking all these fine wines, and and we hardly drank any of them. No one can afford them. And so we were drinking, we were drinking Gamay's, we were drinking wines from the Jura, we were drinking wines that I'd never heard of, but wines that were light, that were, that, that I drank my first pet nats, I drank my first orange wines. We were drinking all these sorts of wines that back in New Zealand, no one had ever heard of, yeah. you know, basically. Um, and so we, we came back and at the same time we were, we were struggling as a winery. There was a recession on, and we we had to work pretty hard. There wasn't a lot of joy in the bank balance back then, and mm. and so we thought, we, well, we have to pivot and we have to do things differently. Mm. And out of that came different varieties. We planted Gamay, we planted um, Chenin, Pinot Blanc. Um, we started making different styles. We made some of the first pet nats. We made some of the first orange wines. We, so we started doing things differently for our own intellect. Mm. We started doing things differently because we needed to appeal to the gatekeepers, the on-premise, the people that were writing about wines. And the only way you could do that here is if you weren't making Pinot to a degree. Do something and else. Then, yeah, you're do, doing something else, you know, let, let your reputation be on the few rather than the many mm. kind of thing. I mean, you've always been a risk taker, haven't you? And, and, and you like innovation, I think, and, uh, yeah, just trying new things. I mean, you know, as you said, you mentioned some things you've done, the four pet nats. You sold a keg wine, the first to do that on tap, wasn't it, Pinot? You're making this Oloroso style and Blanc. You've done a Vermouth. Um, is that the most fun bit of winemaking? You've said it was a necessity in a way that you needed to pivot just to find a new market. But it, it, do, do you enjoy doing that, taking a few risks? Oh, yeah, look, I think, I mean, we've made a few mistakes. I mean, Jesus, um, I'm not sure my business partner likes them all. Um, but we've always had a B plan. You know, I, I say this sort of um, blithely, but there's always a B plan. So we we planted uh, the Shannon and we thought, well, look, if it doesn't work, what are we going to do? And at that stage, gin was going crazy. Mm. And we thought, look, well, why don't we make a vermouth? And if we make it out of Shannon, that, that would be that would be a path. And at the same time, we'd been we'd just been on holiday to Jerez 
and it was like the best, oh, my God, the best holiday I've been on, I think. And um, and we went, well, why can't we make a style of wine like that? Mm. And so we started oxidising um, the wine. We've got six years of it now. But for me it was about it's far more fun doing that. I mean, I, I, we know how to make um, Pinot Noir in a pretty well, and we, and, and we think we make some good examples. But the newer styles are the ones that, and especially the ones that no one else are making, I mean, they're intellectually the most challenging. Mm. You're absolutely. And so I guess to, to answer your question, they are the most fun. Um, the delivery is, is is another thing altogether. You mentioned keg wine. Well, I, I mean, again, my, most of my friends aren't real winos. Mm. And so they get as much pleasure and, and certainly value from wines that are, are a bit more regular a little bit more every day mm. and so we looked at that and went well actually why can't we make nice wines to fit that category why why does it have to be just fine wine for us we can do both a lot of people do they they probably hide it or have another brand or I didn't see the reason to do that. So, as you said, we along it was the idea of a chef friend of mine, Al Brown, opened a new restaurant, mm. and I'd just seen tap wine in the west coast of the US, and 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 most of it was pretty bad. But we thought, well, why can't we serve really good wine like do this? something good? Yeah, and do something good. Yeah. And um, the technology has changed with a lot of that sort of thing, and and honestly, there's less processing. The wine goes up um, uh, in in the same fashion. Mm. So so we started that back in 2011. It was it was it was crazy actually. He opened this restaurant called Depot, and he and he said, look, we're gonna and we decided we'd serve wine on tap, but even worse, wine in tumblers. And so this was like this was sacrilege um, in New Zealand at the time. And this was one of the better restaurants. This was probably the restaurant in New Zealand at the time. Oh, I love it. And so, we decided on this, and I sent him up. I remember buying 10 kegs, and I thought, well, I'll send up two, and a keg for people listening is 20 litres, so that's two and a half cases of wine. Now, as a, a winery, if you sell a case of wine a week to a restaurant, that is a good client, and you look after them. You know, they yeah. are great. Two cases, you know, fantastic. So we sent two cases up, and I thought, well, we'll have two coming down on the courier, two going up, and I'll have two in the winery. Perfect. Well, they opened on the Friday. On the Saturday morning, he rang me and said, well, we sold both of the kegs. When are the other two arriving? And I thought, bloody hell, I'm, I really am in the crap here. And um, and so I jumped on a plane and took two kegs up as luggage. I love and, it. Taxi arrived at the restaurant, <laughs> dropped them off, picked up the two kegs, and for that whole next week, we flew up every single day with with a couple with of kegs, kegs with, with kegs <laughs> as yeah. luggage. Well, we were selling twenty five cases a week through that restaurant. Within the first week, I ordered another fifty kegs, and honestly, wow. our financial fortunes were were changed. Yeah, through so, kegs. Yeah. Through kegs, and and it came at a cost, though. Honestly, the first week I probably got half a dozen phone calls from 
people in my own industry going, what are you doing? You are bastardising what we're trying to do. You're mm. dumbing down the wine industry. Mm. You're, there, there, was, there was so much negativity mm. that was directed at me. It was, it was at the same time I'm thinking, what am I doing? No, I you know, this, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, we were selling $10,000 worth of wine a week and the week before we had none. And I was thinking, well, there we go. Yeah, it seems to be working though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listen, tell us a little bit about travel, you know, not just travelling with kegs under your arm. Um, you know, you've worked in, you know, wineries in Oregon, in California, Germany, you mentioned Spain, you've been to. Um, any place you've not made wine, you think, God, I'd love to make wine there? Um, uh, I think probably if I if I was honest, somewhere like Hillary, uh, so like Spain, some, mm. somewhere in Spain or Portugal, I think those areas have been a revelation to me in the last few years. The wines are just dry and mineral, and the white wines, especially, I think, uh, I think are amazing and inexpensive, and, right? For what they are, yeah, sort of value plus. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, why? You know, you can't afford. I can't afford to buy the wines that traditionally we would want to buy or emulate or or look at. They're becoming. Not irrelevant, but they're coming outside our realm of thinking now. Uh, and so, when we go out with fellow winemakers, we're not drinking Burgundies like by and large. Mm-hmm. Now we're drinking wines from those sorts of countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, so, talking of Burgundy, I uh, hear that you once misbehaved in the Latash Vineyard. Is that true? <laughs> Jesus, you know, damn the internet! <laughs> you say one thing to one person. <laughs> Is it true? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, it is true. The vineyard is wrong, but 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 it was very close to that. Um, it's still in the same table. Um, yeah, look, it was probably one of the the um, most romantic um, uh, times of my life, and and um, and 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 I, I I won't get in trouble with my wife, that's for sure. Um, but it was it was probably one of those it was one of those moments I'll never forget. And and in some ways, it, it even though you know I've only been I've only had uh, maybe a dozen bottles of. Um, Romney Conti in my life, but um, it's it's a. I think wine is so much by association, mm-hmm. and and you gain so much from the people you have it with, the place, the the the, the when and the where, and quite apart from the from the result, it was something that I will never forget because of all of those things, and so. Even though I, you know, it, you know, I'd love to have a few more bottles whenever I can. It's probably a, a winery that will remain dear in my heart for a whole lot of reasons. <laughs> yes, I won't ask if it was at night or during the day. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about New Zealand and, and Central, uh, more specifically, just how you think they're going to develop over the next twenty years. I mean, what it's achieved in the last twenty years uh, has been incredible. I mean, since, pretty much since you bought Mount Edward, I mean, it was you know, it was just getting going then, wasn't it? I mean, what's going to happen to it over the next twenty years? We're going to see more wineries. Uh, are some of the wineries going to going to drop out of the scene? What's going to happen? Oh, look, I mean, you know, <laughs> who knows? Uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, what the future brings anywhere? Look, I think the play. It's getting harder and harder to get an entry. Uh, so you are seeing less and less uh, young people get an entry point into the industry. I think. I think that is going to be a real challenge um, to get the next generation coming through. 
Uh, we as a winery, and I know others do it as well, we sell grapes basically at below cost to about four or five different younger winemakers mm-hmm. and just in order for them to get a start. I, I think that is going to be um, a real issue moving forward. It, it, in terms of the wider industry, you've just had um, one of the Rothschild arms by Akarua, and and I think you will see more of that coming through bigger players. I I think the newer mm. the newer entrants will happen less and less here. Um, I think that you'll see those in regions that have a much wider amount of vineyards mm. and 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 with it more opportunity. So. Mm. That'll happen in places like Marlborough and Hawke's Bay. In Central, I don't think so. I think it will. It, the offerings will become a bit narrower. In the, in it's too small, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's too small and it's too expensive. Mm. It's it's you you have to go outside that. the The varieties will change. I mean, we're growing Chenin and you know Gamay to to a lesser degree, but Chenin Cab Franc are starting to make appearances, and and you will see those happen for sure. Um, and I think you see, you even see that now. There's a divergence of styles coming through, and they're all quite accepted. Um, you know, quite apart from mm. some of the things that we do on the on the out on the out. The, the weird stuff. Yeah. Well, apart from that, you'll you'll see other varieties becoming a little bit more mainstream, and you know, you know that's a fantastic result. So, look, outside parties uh, coming in, um, I think you'll see new varieties. Um, I think the dangers are not seeing enough new blood coming through; that there'll be barriers to that. Um, but you know, it's it's a it's a great place that still encourages innovation. So, so hopefully, I'll be proved wrong on the last point listen last thing i mean you've talked about outside parties i know you're a great dancer you really enjoy music you like festivals is that your main outlet for getting away from wine probably is to be honest um i think there's nothing more liberating than to be uh to lose yourself um dancing in a crowd um that are all doing the same things it's it's a it's actually it's a creative button that gets pushed, and you come out of that thing all all a hundred percent, two hundred percent better. Um, I think as long as I can move, and um, as long as I have the capacity to do it, that will be probably my main release and my main balance point. You know, for wine, it does get quite insular, doesn't it? it you does. need you need other things in your life, be it yeah. uh, be it you need other creative things. It'll be something creative, put it that way. I love it. Anyway, look, hope to see you on the dance floor very soon, either down in New Zealand or in London or somewhere around the world. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, see you soon and enjoy the winter, if I can say so, from a hot place in the Northern Hemisphere. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and really great to catch up after so long. See ya. Well, I knew that would be fun. Duncan didn't let me down. Particularly love the idea of Pinot Noir being served from a keg. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Gordon Newton Johnson of Newton Johnson Family Vineyards in South Africa's Upper Hemlanada Valley. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week. <laughs>